And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today we get to continue our sermon series on Christianity in the 21st century. We have the chance to explore deeply what it means to be Christian today, and more specifically, what theology makes sense in our present world. I know you've been waiting on bated breath to find out more. Last week, we looked at the Christian framework of for human nature and re-examined the classic Christian notion of sin. Human beings are subject to sin, which means we are broken. We are separated from others, from ourselves, and from God. It is out of this state of separation that humans act in ways that we wish we didn't. Humans are in need of healing, of wholeness, of salvation. That is the first step in constructing a Christian theology that makes sense for us today. The next step is thinking deeply about God. What do we mean when we talk about God? Who is God? And what difference does God make for us in our lives? The question of God has been made more pressing in recent years with the rise of the so-called new atheists, like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and others. These writers have had a field day poking holes in the classic Christian conception of God. And as people of faith, these arguments from these new atheists, these arguments demand a response. They demand that we think deeply about God today if we're going to own the label of Christian. So let's do just that, and hopefully have a little fun in the process. The first thing we have to do in thinking about God is to confront the image that we find on the cover of our bulletin. Here is Michelangelo's iconic image from the Sistine Chapel of God creating the sun. It's the picture of an old white man in the sky. I could just as easily have chosen any number of dozens of similar images from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Even though these images of God are hundreds of years old, it's remarkable how much power they still have in shaping our conceptions of who God is. It starts when we're very young. If you were to ask an elementary school-aged child to draw an image of God, more often than not, he or she will draw an image of this old white man in the sky. As people get older, they say, of course God is not some old white man in the sky. God is God. And yet, what's implied in that image of God tends to stick with people far more than they're willing to admit. One persistent element of this image is that God is male. By linking God to gender, we reinforce the notions that male is power, male is in control, male is more important than female. If you don't think that the image of God as male has much force, try using feminine pronouns for God. As soon as you start saying she instead of he for God, most people bristle at the substitution. How dare you call God a woman? And yet, God has no genitalia. God is clearly not a man. But that image of Michelangelo still sticks with us. It's hard to shake. Another element of this image of God that persists is that God has a human will like ours. We anthropomorphize God. God thinks like we do. God makes decisions like we do. Sometimes God decides to act in some ways. Other times God decides to act in other ways. It all depends on what God wants, <clears throat> what God is feeling at that time. A third element of this classic conception of God is the old white man in the sky is just that. He's up in the sky. God is somehow up there, which means God is not down here. God is separate from us, apart from us, distinct from us. The final element from this classic image of God is God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. God can do all things and controls all things on earth. In Michelangelo's image, God with bulging muscles, 
that attest to his power is creating the very sun itself. It's hard to overstate how much impact these four features of God have had through the centuries. God is male, with a human will, who is up in heaven and all-powerful. Think of how this image of God has shaped devotional practices and beliefs. Christians often pray to God in the hope that they can change God's mind. They pray that God will come down from heaven and make things right here on earth or punish our enemies. God is the all-powerful Father that Christians must somehow appease. Does any of this sound familiar? If you were honest, would you say this classic image of God has impacted your own faith life? Do you see any problem with this view on God? The Enlightenment sure did. The Enlightenment, the so-called Age of Reason, that stretched from the mid-17th century until the end of the 18th century, relentlessly challenged this classic view of God. Most of the arguments that the new atheists level against God can be traced back to this pivotal period. Their most basic argument was, if God is so powerful, why don't we see more evidence for him? Enlightenment thinkers divided the world into two spheres, the natural world and the supernatural world. The natural world functioned according to the laws of physics that Isaac Newton laid out. The natural world could be examined and experimented with. It was predictable. Separate from this natural world was the supernatural, the realm of God. God existed outside the natural world and would intervene in the natural world when God saw fit. With this supernatural natural divide firmly in place, David Hume and others attacked the notion of miracles. For Hume, it was far more likely that humans either invented miraculous occurrences or interpreted events incorrectly, then somehow the laws of nature had been violated. Miracles, at least in the sense of God intervening to disrupt the natural world, were a fiction, according to David Hume. While you couldn't disprove the miracles of the Bible, you could see how incredibly unlikely they were. If God intervenes in the natural world, show me where it occurs. Where is this God that you speak of? Where are the lightning bolts in the sky? Where are the miraculous healings? It wasn't a far step from Hume's critique to the deist view of God, which was an attempt by Enlightenment thinkers to deal with this very issue. Deists believe that God created the universe and then intentionally stepped back to let the natural world function on its own. God might be real, but God is indifferent. Whether God exists or not doesn't make much of a difference. While these Enlightenment-era arguments dealt a major blow to the classic conception of God, Probably the strongest argument against God, against the God of Michelangelo, is the persistent problem of evil. If God is all-powerful, and if God makes decisions as humans, humans make decisions, why does God not intervene to prevent evil from occurring? More to the point, why is there so much injustice in the world? Why does God let it happen? People through the centuries have wrestled with this in various ways. Some have explained the persistence of evil by arguing that without evil, you can't have a conception of the good. Good is a relative term. Therefore, in order for God to be good and to bring about good, there must be evil as well. The existence of evil and sin is there to show the glory of God when God overcomes it. Another argument is that evil is there to train us. We, go, we grow and mature in the faith through our suffering. Suffering has a redemptive quality to it. It makes us better people, or so the argument goes. Another common solution to the problem of evil is that it's all part of some larger plan that you cannot see. Only God can see it. While it may seem like God is letting bad things happen, the fact is there is some design at play. It's one small part in the grand narrative of salvation. For example, the Israelite disobedience of God's laws and the subsequent punishments of Israel 
open the door for the new covenant in Jesus. See, it's all part of a larger plan. But do these arguments actually solve the problem of evil? They might, make, they might make sense in an academic textbook or in theological disputes, but they seem far different from the perspective of the one who is actually suffering. In the lived experience of humans, these arguments seem less and less convincing. Let's say you're a parent and your child dies of a rare disease. Are you supposed to tell the parent that God let your child die because we need, because we need that evil somehow to show the good of God? Are you supposed to comfort the parent by saying it would be a good learning experience for him or her? Should you look at the grieving parent in the eye and say, don't worry, it's all a part of God's plan? That's absurd. More to the point, it's offensive. Who can believe in a God who could have saved your child and chose not to? Who can believe in God who is some cosmic sadist? How can you still believe in God that God is good if God took away that which matters more to you than your own life? This is where, for many, the Holocaust was the final nail in the coffin for Michelangelo's God. Here you have six million innocent Jews, supposedly God's chosen people, killed from the sheer blind hatred of Adolf Hitler and his minions. How can the death of six million innocent people ever fit into God's plan? I don't know about you, but for me, the problem of evil is a deal breaker for this classic conception of God. I cannot and will not believe in a God who has the power to end certain evil and chooses not to. I won't do it, sorry. It just won't work for me. So what are we to do? Should we take the atheist path and toss the notion of God out altogether? Shall we take the deist path and say that God created the universe and the moral order of the world and then let the natural world take its own course? That would certainly solve the problem of evil. Is that, is that what makes the most sense to you? Is there another option? Could there be another option? You see, there's an issue with throwing out the notion of God altogether or making God indifferent or irrelevant to life. It doesn't correspond to our experience. Humans all over the world and throughout recorded history have had experiences that they label divine. This is a persistent human phenomenon. No matter how many arguments arise for getting rid of any notion of God, people continue to believe in God because of these experiences of the divine. As theologians have wrestled with the problems of the classic view on God, they have used these experiences of God to construct new ways of speaking in theological terms. The first theologian to take this approach was Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher defined the experience of God as the feeling of absolute dependence. But by far the most famous and influential writer on this experience of God was Rudolf Otto. In his book, The Idea of the Holy, Otto labels the experience of God as numinous. It is something that is non-sensory and non-rational, and yet cannot be reduced or explained away. Religious people talk about these numinous experiences all the time. They come upon us in worship while singing, praying, listening to sermons or in the sacraments. They appear when we interact with nature or with other people. Psalm 104, one of our readings for today, speaks of this glorious experience of God in and through nature. I bet if you closed your eyes now and thought about it, you could come up with memorable moments of the numinous. So if we want to give language for this experience and how it can shape our lives, we need to work to define what we mean when we say God. This is not some old white man in the sky, not at all. It's something far more profound and important for our lives. Few thinkers have taken this task as seriously as process theologians. 
process theologians have, thought as, have sought to describe this experience of God in ways that make sense in our contemporary scientific worldview. It's no surprise that process theology grew out of the 1920s when physicists were overturning the Newtonian way of looking at the world. It turns out that on the subatomic level, matter does not behave in ways that we once assumed. Even time itself is not stable, but dependent on gravity and mass. The world in which we live is far more complex than we assume, and our senses can only grasp a small fraction of reality. Reality is not made up of static substances, but matter continuously in motion. Process theologians locate the divine within this dynamic process of growth and change. God is that source, that energy that drives creativity and growth. God is ever present with creation. The created world is not God, but God is infused within the created world. This is what gives rise to the name panentheism, literally God in all things. And what is the essence of God? What is the, what is the essence of this force, this energy, this phenomenon? It is love. As 1 John 4 says, God is love. God does not work through coercion. It is the dynamic power of love at work in the world and within you that lures you into relationship with God. And there's plenty in the world that's not God. Forces of chaos, entropy, destruction are always at work as well. Humans have free will to choose to follow God, to choose to work for love and growth and creativity. Humans have the capacity to get in touch with God, moving within them and around them. Humans can also say no to those same forces. They can move from peace and love to violence and hatred. They can ignore the movement of God within every person and seek power over others. But when we ground ourselves in God, we ground ourselves in love, healing, and wholeness. This perspective on God, panentheism, has profound implications for theology. Since there's no separation between the natural and supernatural world, the entire framework that someone like David Hume to describe miracles goes out the window. Miracles are not violations of the laws of nature from some outside force. Miracles occur as God works in and through us. God doesn't contradict science or the natural world. God is an integral part of the natural world. God is also not, transcend is not a transcendent other up there in the sky. God is imminent, present all around us. God is intimately involved in the world and creation. The God of process theologians is not one with a human will that makes decisions as we do. But God is still intimate and personal. The love that is God works in and through us to make us who we are. We can call God by name and know that God is there as a presence, a force, a co-creator with our very being. The God of process theology is not, and the God of process theology is most definitely not responsible for the evil in the world. God is not some all-powerful being that causes events to happen as though he were playing with dolls. God has an impact on events of the world, but God does not control the events of the world. God is always a force for good, for wholeness, for healing, and for love. Prayer is not about asking some all-powerful being to change the way of the world. Prayer for process theologians is designed to help us get in touch with God's presence in our lives and to align our will with God's will. Given all that's been said here, you might very well ask, what of, what of the Bible? What of those passages in the Bible where God is described in different language? What do we make of that? Well, the Bible itself is the account of people who use their own experiences and worldviews to describe how God had been at work in their lives. There are plenty of passages that align quite well with a process view of the divine. 
But the Bible is also a reflection of, a, of particular times and places. Just as we use modern scientific framework and language to make sense of God, so did the biblical writers use their own pre-modern framework to talk about God. What's amazing about the Bible is not that every passage is the inerrant word of God. What's amazing about the Bible is that despite the time and difference that separates us from the biblical world, we can still find so much truth, goodness, and a path to salvation through the Bible. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to adopt a panentheist view of the divine. You might have your own reasons for thinking that panentheism does not align with your experience of the world. But for me, and I believe for many of us, a panentheist viewpoint opens up a whole new horizon for God and for speaking of the divine in our lives. It solves some of the trickiest problems that the classic view on God presents, and more to the point, can enrich our own lives spiritually. So what do you think? Are you a panentheist? Someone who believes God is within all things? Are you something else entirely? We can continue to ponder these questions as next week we turn to look at Jesus. See, I told you, theology is a lot of fun. <laughs>